Mosul has been absolutely hammered and I've been involved in clearing mines and bomb disposal for nearly 25 years and I've been to places like East Kabul in the 90s, Quito in, in 94 in Angola, even Gaza after the, the recent conflict um, where some of it was quite heavily hit and I have not personally been to a part of a city that has had that level of of pulverization with the level of contamination that we're seeing there from explosive hazards. Sobering words there from Paul Heslop, Chief of Programme Planning and Management with the UN Mine Action Service known as UNMAS. Mosul, located in northern Iraq, had been strangled by ISIL for more than two years before the Iraqi army and its supporters launched an offensive in October 2016 to free the city. Welcome to The Lid Is On, a monthly podcast from the team here at UN News. I'm Matt Wells. Paul Heslop, who just returned from Mosul, came into our podcast studio here at UN headquarters in New York in May and sat down with my colleague Deanne Penn. She asked him to talk about what he'd seen doing his dangerous but vital work across Iraq's second largest city. I just returned from Iraq and one of the the highlights and probably low points of my mission was to visit Mosul and to see our program. As people are probably aware, Mosul was liberated from ISIS after being under ISIS control for, for quite a long period of time. And um, the campaign to recapture Mosul, particularly West Mosul, was very protracted. And in terms of uh, the weapons and ordnance used, what is called Old Mosul, or the, the old part of town, um, was very heavily bombed and shelled and in a sense became ISIS's last stand. And I, again, I guess you could say had the, the privilege or, or the opportunity to go and see where that final battle in Mosul took place. Mosul has been absolutely hammered and I've been involved in clearing mines and bomb disposal for nearly 25 years. And I've been to places like East Kabul in the 90s, Quito in, in 94 in Angola, even Gaza after the, the recent conflict um, where some of it was quite heavily hit. And I have not personally been to a part of a city that has had that level of, of pulverization with the level of contamination that we're seeing there from explosive hazards. So you have a situation in, in Mosul where the actual weaponry that was being prepped to be used, so those rockets, grenades and mortars that the fighters inside uh, Mosul had and weren't used, so they were abandoned, discarded or dropped. There is the weapon systems that were used by the attackers, so those artillery shells, those mortars, those guided missiles, the aircraft bombs. A weapon of choice from ISIL is the IED, so you have IEDs that were ready to be used in an offensive way against the attackers, I'm so sorry. I'm just. Can you just explain IED for our listeners who may not be familiar with yeah. that? IED is improvised explosive device. It's like a homemade. So it almost yeah. It's a homemade bomb, or or should I say, it's a a bomb that's been made from different components that would not necessarily be from a factory. So when you talk about normal ordnance, you know, a rocket or a shell or a guided missile, it will have been made in a factory to a specific design specification with quality control and would use a 
probably military-grade explosives. An IED may use military-grade explosives, or it could be homemade explosives made from fertilizer, sugar, and diesel. Um, so the components are improvised, hence the name improvised explosive device. So all of these different types of explosive hazards in this in, area? In Mosul itself. So you had the traditional ordnance that had been used or abandoned. Then you had the IEDs that had been prepped for use against the coalition forces. You then had IEDs placed within buildings or areas to be activated in the event that coalition forces or civilians return. And then you had ISIS fighters who were wearing suicide belts or the the IED belts so that they could, as a last stand, you know, counterattack one of the attackers and detonate themselves. And then you had human shields, which were women and children who were put into IED, you know, that they would wear and somebody else would activate. And that part of the town was pulverized and a lot of that contamination is still there. And unfortunately, when we first started working in, in Mosul six months ago, a number of those IEDs or suicide vests were still being worn by people who'd been killed. And so we were in a situation where not only did we have to clear the IEDs, but these IEDs were on bodies. And so we've had teams for the last six months having to go in and, and actually clear the IED from a body so the body could be removed and buried and, and treated with the dignity it deserves. But of course, in terms of an unpleasant task, Clearing an IED in any situation is dangerous, but when it's attached to human remains, it's probably the most unpleasant task I've seen in my 25 years in mine action. My mind is just totally blown by the level of contamination, but the, the, the complexity of all of this. I mean... I guess there's no way to know how many of these types of devices were... Well, so far we've cleared over 27,000 devices in six months in Mosul, and we're just starting to scratch the surface. Um, over 200 suicide vests have been cleared and over 400 IEDs. So there is just a huge amount of work. Um, our first and, and biggest task to date was a, a big hospital complex, which used to be the teaching hospital, one of the biggest hospitals outside of Baghdad in Iraq. And that was very heavily contaminated. And we're in the process of, of clearing the, those areas. The initial emergency clearance was so that the Ministry of Health could get into the hospital ruins and recover medical equipment that could still be used. So x-ray machines and scanners that were in there. And of course, ISIS had been there. They had left behind booby traps and IEDs and our team needed to clear that. So emergency medical equipment that is badly needed in Iraq could be recovered and used in a temporary hospital. And now that task is ongoing so that we can clear the hospital so that it can be rebuilt, refurbished, re-equipped, and the doctors can go back in. And that's just one task. And, you know, we could use examples of schools, of water and sanitation facilities, sewage treatment. In Fallujah, as an example, we had one task where we cleared two IEDs. And you might think, well, two bombs, that's very brave, that's great. But as a consequence of clearing those two IEDs, 250,000 people a day have access to clean water now because all of the water pumping and water treatment for Fallujah was done, but that couldn't happen until those two devices were cleared. So one of the things that we're really looking to do in Iraq is make sure that the tasks we do with the very limited resources we've got have got the maximum impact. We just did an, another recent task where one of the bridges across um, the Tigris River had been blown by ISIS and then booby-trapped. And so when, when UNDP was trying to do the reconstruction of that bridge, they were trying to pull the, the damaged bridge out and they found it was contaminated with IEDs. 
within six weeks of getting the request, we had mobilized a completely new capacity that we've not used before in Iraq before, which was an underwater demining capability, deployed them into the river, removed the IEDs from the debris, and allowed that debris to be removed so that the bridge can be rebuilt. And we're anticipating over a thousand vehicles an hour will use that bridge once it's reconstructed. How big is your team there in, in Iraq and who is it made up? Is it local people as well as experts from abroad? Uh, the composition of the unmasked team in, in Iraq, as with other countries, is, is a mix of international technical experts, um, bomb disposal specialists, programmatic and logistics people, And then um, a lot of the work we do is with implementing partners who may be international organizations, they may be national NGOs, civil society, or commercial actors. Um, in Iraq, there is a na an Iraq National Authority for Mine Action, the DMA, and we work very closely with them, ensuring that everything is done to international standards, but compliant with Iraqi law. And you know, most of the, the search staff who are out checking every day as in Afghanistan and Cambodia, are national. So it's Iraqi D-miners who are working, but with the really technical, high-end, complex skills generally being provided by former military who are working on UN contracts. And in Mosul itself, approximately how many people, can you say? Uh, our teams in Mosul at the moment, unfortunately, we've we've only got probably about 100 people deployed in Mosul. We could... we. We are limited by the amount of funding that's available. If more funding was made available, we would deploy more teams. And there are still issues over parts of Mosul are still considered perhaps to be not completely secure. And so there are still some quite tight security constraints on who can deploy when and where. So we're obviously working with the Iraqi security forces to try and ensure that more implementing partners, so some of the international NGOs, will be able to deploy into Mosul soon and, and add to the capacity. Um, because the need is, say, it's very similar to seeing what Kabul was like in the late 90s. And you say you have about 100, and like, how many more people would you need? I mean, because considering in six months you've cleared 27,000, but you still have... And we've, we're thinking that might be about 1% of the problem. So, you know, I think we would be quite happy um, to deploy, you know, upwards of three, 400 people into Mosul. And, you know, if we could double or triple the budget that we have, it would, would make a significant difference very quickly. And tell me about the terms of, like, you know, what type of person is involved in mine action? You're a military guy. Are, are, are all the people, um, are they from military backgrounds or do you have to be specific training? And uh, again, it depends. I mean, the vast majority of D-miners around the world are civilians or former combatants, you know, who have been recruited as part of a demobilization process or who go through a basic D-minor course. So, you know, and it could be, you know, farmers from northern Cambodia, um, you know, some of the tribesmen in Afghanistan. So to be a D-minor, some are ex-military, some aren't. To get to the very high end, to be a technical operator who's going to deal with advanced IEDs that may be activated by infrared sensors or, or different forms of remote devices of pressure plates or, or motion sensors, that requires a huge amount of technical skill and years of experience. I mean, in the British Army, to be classed as a high-risk operator, you would normally have served for about 10 years and would go through about a year of specialist training. So, you know, that is a skill set that is pretty unique. I mean, I'm not saying it's a nuclear physicist, but, you know, there are not a lot of people in the world who have that skill set. So at the very high end, they tend to be ex-military and they tend to be, you know, pretty experienced guys. And there are now some ladies starting to come in, in into that. 
Um, at the other end of the spectrum, where you're a, a D miner working with a detector under very close supervision, that is around a two to three week basic course. And we have had a lot of experience at working with nationals from, from many countries. In Afghanistan, at the peak of our operations, there were over 15,000 Afghans deployed as D miners. Culturally, they're all men, um, but that's 15,000 men of fighting age between the age of 18 and 50 who are out every day making their community safer and they've got a salary and they're supporting their families and they're not doing something naughty you know they are actually employed in making their community safe and you could view it as a you know combating violent extremism or, or community violence reduction you know, not just the fact that they're removing an explosive hazard and making their community safe, but they've got gainful employment and large numbers of men of fighting age are being taken out of circulation and used in a, in a purposeful way. And we would love to see more of that happening in countries like Somalia, in Iraq, you know, potentially in countries like Yemen and Syria, you know, where a lot of people could be employed and be given cash for work and that work benefits society. This is some seriously dangerous work, though. Operating a chainsaw badly is extremely dangerous. Um, driving under the influence is extremely dangerous. Demining is is not as dangerous as people think when it is done to the following the rules and to the correct standards. And actually, an interesting statistic is we have probably had more deminers killed and injured in road traffic accidents in the last 10 years driving to and from the minefield than actually at the minefield because when they're on site they're in a very disciplined and controlled environment accidents happen but they are relatively rare unfortunately when you're driving on the roads in the countries we work in in fairly powerful four-wheel drive vehicles and the drivers may not be as careful as the deminers are or they get hit by another vehicle. So, yeah, a bizarre statistic is, yeah, we have more people killed and injured going to and from the site than we do actually on the site. Unfortunately, in Mosul and in Iraq, in particular, the very technical nature of some of the IDs we're finding is meaning that, unfortunately, probably some of our search staff are going to get killed and injured. Um, and we, we're putting all of the processes in place. And actually, interestingly or coincidentally, the USGs for DFS and DPKO signed off on UN standards for IED disposal. And those standards will hopefully ensure that anybody who is working for the UN or with the UN are operating to the highest possible levels of equipment, training, professionalism, um, and understanding of the task. And I personally hope that those standards are a big step forward in making sure that there are as few people as possible killed or injured doing this work. I'm just going to interject there because Mr. Heslov used a couple of acronyms that listeners may not be so familiar with. He spoke about USGs. These are basically the senior officials in charge of UN departments, and the specific departments he mentioned were Department of Field Support, DFS, and Department of Peacekeeping Operations, DPKO. So they're the people who deal with all of the UN field operations, logistics, and also putting peacekeepers on the ground, and civilians too who work for the missions. Um, Back to Mosul. You know, you mentioned in Fallujah how the clearing of the bridge allowed so many cars to come through. After six months in Mosul, what sort of civilian activity are you seeing? Are people returning? People are returning. And, and again, I think, yeah, Mosul was a big city. I mean, more than two million people live there. Not all of Mosul is contaminated by unexploded ordnance and IEDs. And one of our tasks is, I think, to help identify the areas that are safe to go to, not just the areas that are dangerous and you shouldn't go to. 
Um, so turning the glass so it's a half full rather than half empty. And a lot of the work we're doing with our survey teams, our community liaison teams, is to try and establish the level of threat or contamination and to then release those areas so that agencies like UNICEF, like UNDP, WHO, World Food Programme can get in and start their humanitarian programmes, particularly under the coordination of the UN Protection Cluster System. So we're doing a lot of work to try and assist our colleagues in the agency's funds and programmes to get in and start humanitarian assistance in parts of Mosul. Now, the parts of Mosul that are very heavily contaminated, and particularly West Mosul, where, where ISIS sort of held out to the end, that is going to require a lot of work. I mean, I was at... Uh, the site of a mosque which is over 1600 years old it's a world heritage site and unfortunately there's not a lot of the mosque left so there's quite a lot of work will need to be done there but people want to get back to their homes and it's incredible to already see the number of people who are trying to clear rubble out of their homes mark out what was their home and even in a couple of cases i saw um, concrete had been poured you know as a as a floor base and foundation so uh, your reconstruction is already starting our challenge is to try and make sure that the people who are going back are aware of the threat that they're facing if they see something that they think is suspicious or dangerous they know how to report that and how we can then respond to do that but unfortunately people want to go home and probably um, looking at the level of contamination there will be civilian casualties in Mosul because they will go back to their home and either there will be an explosive device that was left there for a reason or it just failed to detonate or nefariously it was a booby trap and you know people will be killed and injured as we have seen in Fallujah and Ramadi. Our real challenge is to try and have the right resources particularly in terms of risk education and community liaison to make sure that when something is found it is reported and dealt with as, as soon as possible. But even when that happens, there is still a, a shortage of resources to respond to that. So it's a bit like having a fire engine trying to deal with five fires at once. You actually need five fire engines. And we're a bit short of fire engines when it comes to explosive ordnance disposal at the moment. It seems like a lot of your work also must entail educating the population. How are people responding? Are they open to the mine action teams? Very much so, and I think you know people are aware of the threat and the work that UNMAS and the UN is doing is really key on this. But again, Iraq is a very complex society, and there are different communities and, and different social norms. So the messaging that we might be using in you know to a Shia community may need to be slightly different to a Sunni community, which may be different to a Christian community. And so the the images and the messaging, you know, we're trying to look at it in a very strategic way and, and tailor the communication in the right ways. One of the things that I noticed on my last trip to Iraq, I, I visited one of the IDP camps. And, you know, it was a real eye-opener because I hadn't been for, for several years to one on, into just the, the horrific conditions that people who are living in camps have to live in. But one of the things that sort of stood out is the amount of time that people stand queuing queue to get a food coupon they queue to get water they queue to go to to the bathroom and so while they're stood around there is that opportunity to try and get messages to them so before they return home so we've been looking at doing risk education programs whether it's through posters banners leaflets play radio 
that engage with people who have been in the camps so that before they go home they're aware of some of the threats. We've been looking at using social media. Again, Iraq is a middle-income society, high level of education and is technologically savvy. So using things like Twitter, Facebook, SMS and how to get that messaging out. Um, so there's been quite a lot of innovative ways of trying to get people to understand the messaging and what we're doing. It's a challenge and it's interesting and if we get it right we will save lives. Mr. Heslov, thank you so much. And um, you've alluded to it throughout the whole conversation, but I wonder if you can really impress on us the importance of mine action. Because, you know, I think when people think of the United Nations, we think of like development aid and peacekeeping. People may not even imagine mine action. And it's really, really crucial to everything that the UN does. It is. And I think one of the challenges of mine action is everybody knows that clearing mines or clearing bombs is a good thing. But I think it is quite often forgotten as a precursor to being able to do the other humanitarian interventions we look at. You know, when we use the example of the bridge in Fallujah, you know, did clearing that bridge allow refugees to come out? Did it allow IDPs to return? Did it allow um, stabilization activities to take place? Did it allow early recovery? Did it allow UNICEF teams to go out and do vaccinations? Did it allow World Food Programme to go out and do food distributions? Did it allow um, the government to re-establish its authority in liberated areas? And the answer is yes to all of the above. So, you know, what was the precursor to that? That was the mine clearance. That was the bomb disposal. Because until that bridge was cleared, it was a five-hour detour to a bridge that would have been backed up because there was twice as much traffic on it. So it would have probably been a 10-hour detour. So, you know, the precursors to peace or the precursors to peace dividends is removing the explosive hazard, the explosive detritus of war that then allows all those, these other activities to take place. And unfortunately, that is quite often forgotten or it's seen as a challenge or too technical a challenge. We don't know how to do it. And I think, you know, a big part of, of UNMAS's role is to engage at every level from the community on the ground to member states in the General Assembly or through the Security Council to remind them of the need to factor in that whenever there is conflict and explosive weapons are used, some of them are going to fail and they're going to be a hazard to the civilian population after the war is over. And unless they're removed, people will either be killed or injured or that land will never be used again. And Mosul, of course, is just one location. Man masses all over the world. Funding is needed... UNMAS is operational in 17 programs um, across several countries and territories. Uh, we're supporting peacekeeping missions, in 10 peacekeeping missions. We're supporting political missions, and we've got purely humanitarian missions or a combination of the three. Um, probably our biggest challenge, more so than the technical nature, is funding. And one of the challenges that we have is, I think, when the Ottawa Treaty was signed 20 years ago, and the Ottawa Treaty is the Ban the Mine Treaty, quite a few people thought job done and then we went through the economic crisis in 2009 and different priorities changed around and again I think people forget that landmines and unexploded ordnance not removing them prohibits development and humanitarian assistance and unfortunately in the last three or four years we've seen the number of casualties from mines and unexploded ordnance rapidly increase so between 1997, when the treaty was signed, and 2013, there was a steady decrease in the number of casualties from mines, and we were winning that battle. 
unfortunately, because of the nature of conflict and the use of victim-operated IEDs, the number of casualties have gone up in the last two or three years, and that is a trend that we need to reverse. And the only way we can reverse that trend is if funds are made available. And unfortunately, demining is expensive, so really the only way those funds are going to be made available at a level that will make a difference is for member states to engage. And obviously there are many mechanisms member states can engage through, whether it's through trust funds or through supporting peacekeeping operations or the various political missions. But we really do need member states to really come back and engage on this issue in a big way and get those casualty numbers going down and hopefully being able to declare the world at least mine free. We may not be explosives free, but mine free within the next five, ten years. And from Mosul, any idea of how long it will take to get rid of all of the explosive hazards? The challenge always when you ask how long is it going to take is it's almost the answer is how long is a piece of string? Yeah, it will depend. I mean, the level of contamination is certainly almost unprecedented. The complexity of the contamination is certainly the highest I've ever personally witnessed. If the resources were made available, I think, you know, the high priority areas could be released quite quickly, but it's going to be a long-term project and um, it will be, I would think, at least three to five years before all of the areas are done. And that's if the if there is an increase in the level of resources. If the if the current level of resources is maintained, it will certainly take more than five years. If the level of resources we have at the moment was to drop, it will take longer. But there are precedents here. You know, I was walking around Kabul in '97, and large areas of it were completely flattened and looked very similar to Mosul does today. I had the pleasure of going back there 18 months ago, and the areas I walked around 20 years ago, you can't even tell. Every piece of land in, in Kabul has been used. There are schools, there are buildings, there are markets. Children are playing in the streets. You know, it is incredible to see what was almost a lunar landscape of the devastation of war in '97. So, you know, we've done it before. And I think, you know, if you look in Europe, you know, some of the devastation, if you think of cities like Coventry, Hamburg, Dresden, you know, they were flattened during the Second World War. They've been rebuilt. It requires commitment, it requires resources, but it can be done. Mr. Haslop, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Is there anything further you think our audience needs to know about the demining activity in Mosul or about Onmas's work generally? I would really like to take the opportunity to acknowledge the the bravery and commitment of the men and women who are working in Mosul on this. Um, you know, whether they are Iraqi or whether they are international. You know, every day they're going out to work in incredibly difficult environments, a very dangerous context, and they're doing it in a way that only engenders respect. I mean, there is huge commitment from these men and women. They make a real difference, and you know, in a sense, they're putting their lives on the line for their community and for their country and and for the international community to show results. And and you know. I, Having, having been on the ground and seen them working, I have nothing but respect for what these, these guys are doing every day. Mr. Heslop, thank you so much. And I have to ask you, <laughs> Princess Diana. Yes. Because she was such a real a figurehead for this whole anti-mine movement. You took her into the fields in Angola, you said? Yeah, I, I had the privilege of taking um, Princess Diana through the minefields um, back in Angola in, in 97. Um, I think what was, was significant about that was the mine issue at the time wasn't fully understood and the Ottawa Treaty, the Ban the Mine Treaty, hadn't been signed and 
that was the reason she was involved. She was invited by the, the Red Cross to visit, and it was very much to highlight the issue of mines. And I think her visit and, you know, those images of her being walking through the minefield on the front page of probably nearly every newspaper in the world the next day gave exposure to this issue that, you know, would never have happened without it. And I think, you know, everybody still, 20 years later, associates that image of Diana walking through a minefield with the work she did. When she, rather unfortunately, died six months later, I think her engagement on this issue was one of those catalysts that I'm not saying it made the final difference, but I think, you know, when member states were deciding whether to ratify the treaty or not, any people who were on the fence, I think public opinion and the association of her with this particular cause probably helped a few politicians make up their mind which way they wanted to go. And, you know, this has now been an extremely successful treaty. You know, over 160 countries have ratified it. There are almost no new landmines in the traditional sense of anti-personal landmines being laid. Um, there's almost no transfer now between countries and almost no production other than a few states. So it has been an incredibly successful treaty that was driven by civil society and her engagement and involvement in it, I think, really sort of helped push that treaty through and has led to a number of other treaties and um, and commitments by member states about the use of explosive weaponry and victim-operated devices that has made a real difference. Paul Heslop of the UN Mine Action Service, UNMAS, paying tribute there to the late Princess Diana and her critical role in promoting awareness of the horrors caused by landmines. And as we heard, UNMAS teams are busy in Mosul and other areas of Iraq where last year... They cleared nearly 37 million square metres of land and trained more than 300 government personnel. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Lid Is On, our flagship podcast here at UN News. I'm Matt Wells at UN headquarters in New York. Thanks so much for listening.